Good afternoon. This is Dr. Dan Guerra coming to you from Authentic Biochemistry Studios in the Inland Pacific Northwest of the beautiful USA. Today is the 21st of January, 2021. Now, we've been doing this discussion for some time now on the central nervous system in the aging human, the effect of the immune response on this process, and then all the underlying biochemical pathways and networks, which contribute to the pathophysiology of the senescent aging process, including comorbidities and ultimately mortality. Last time I talked to you about corticotropin releasing factor and the monoamine fear response. Today, we're gonna to continue with that discussion because there's more to say. So this is gonna be sequence two of that particular topic. So. Let me remind you that the corruption in the transmission of corticotropin-releasing hormone, also known as releasing factor, circuitry, has been linked to uh, many psychiatric disorders, like major depressive disorder, general anxiety disorder, to just name two. And indeed, there is this epigenetic writing into the CRH gene, and that can include both introns and exons, and what that obtains is an elevated psychiatric risk score in adolescence, while single nucleotide polymorphisms in the corticotropin-releasing hormone receptor isoform 1 gene has been linked to modulation of age-dependent effects on working memory, revealing loci-dependent hippocampal dysfunction. Now, this, of course, is associated with the aging, right? Okay, now, another reminder. As a hormone, you have this 41 amino acid polypeptide known as CRF or CRH. It's secreted at the onset of stress. It comes from the paraventricular nucleus of the hypothalamus. CRF is then delivered in the bloodstream to the anterior pituitary, where it binds to the receptors and stimulates ACTH, also known as adrenocorticotropic hormone. So it stimulates the release of ACTH. ACTH then released activates the synthesis of corticosteroids in the adrenal cortex. So you get glucocorticoids like cortisol in humans and corticosterone in rodents. The glucocorticoids, of course, exert a lot of effects on a variety of brain functions from early sensitive developmental stages to late adulthood. So this goes all the way from in utero to the very last days of one's life. In fact, fetal exposure to exogenous glucocorticoids or prenatal stress, which will um, phenocopy exogenous glucocorticoid introduction, will lead to a permanent alteration of the HPA function and can at least be arguably described as a dysfunction of stress-related performance throughout life. At the adult stage, high levels of glucocorticoids are associated with reduced cognitive ability, including poor memory and decreased mental flexibility and reprocessing speed. We're going to get into a lot more of that uh, this afternoon. Now, after crossing the BBB, the blood-brain barrier, glucocorticoids activate two types of receptors. You've got the glucocorticoid receptor and you have the mineral corticoid receptor, and they mediate stress response in the brain. Um, mineral corticoid receptors are active under basal conditions. And of course, they have a high affinity 
to glucocorticoids, whereas the glucocorticoid receptors, since restrictive, have a low affinity to their ligand glucocorticoid, but they're activated in response to high levels of the hormone during stress. So they're measuring basically the tonicity, the level of glucocorticoid in the system, where the GR is turned up when you have high levels of the hormone. Otherwise, it's an occult hormone to, to that, to the glucocorticoid receptor, only functions at the mineral corticoid receptor, you see. So summarizing all that, endogenous corticosteroid secretion from the adrenal cortex is under the control of ACTH, and that's producing the pituitary. ACTH secretion going up one level is controlled mostly by hypothalamic CRF, and that whole phenomenon relies on transcriptional regulation and occurs time frames ranging from a few hours all the way to a few weeks. This is a long-term, as many hormonal responses are, systematic phenomena. Okay. So those are things we talked about already. Now, <clears throat> a paper published in Gerald Science 2017, yes, it'll be in the show notes, reveals the following. The CRF, or the hypothalamic corticotropin releasing factor, lays downstream to catabolic melanocortins and at least partly mediates melanocortin catabolic instantiation. Remember, melanocortins are going to come from the POMC gene, the pro-opio-melanocortin gene, right, after proteolytic digestion. Now, age-related changes in the melanocortin system, so you get weak responsiveness in the middle age and a strong response in the old age in mammals, including humans and rodents. <clears throat> All of that's been shown to contribute to middle-aged obesity and later to aging, which is a reversal, anorexia and indeed cachexia are wasting as the uh, population gets older. Okay. So this paper suggests that catabolic, which is essentially the anorexigenic or hypermetabolic, depending on how you want to look at it, CRF effects vary with aging, and that maybe that CRF is going to mimic or phenocopy how melanocortins function, which is what I just described to you. Weak responsiveness in middle age, strong responses later in life, and you switch from obesogenic to basically cachexia and anorexia as you age responding to the same system. So what they wanted to do here in this paper is test whether age-related variations in CRF affects um, that middle-age obesity and aging anorexia. And is that linked then to weight loss as the population ages? So they did CRF infusion, and indeed it suppressed body weight in the young, aging, and old uh, this is a rat uh, study, rat models, um, but not in the middle-aged animals. Okay, so that's curious. Suppressed body weight in the young and aging and very old, but not in the middle age. So you get a weak anorexigenic and hypermetabolic effect in the young, where a strong anorexia, but not with, associated with hypermetabolism, developed in the older age groups, in which uh, postmodern analysis showed there was a reduction in the retroperitoneal fat mass. So it really did link up to the amount of depot fat. So it looks like CRF gene expression in the PVN 
increased with aging and it supports a potential contribution of age-related changes to CRF in basically what's known as canonical aging anorexia and cachexia in the very old. So what this paper did not really demonstrate that there was a direct link between CRF and middle-aged obesity. And now this is an animal model, right? In humans, we know that obesity is primarily linked to the will to control appetite, whereas the animal model, you just don't see this. So this is where animal models suffer from trying to extrapolate to humans. Okay, but I wanted to put that in there. I wanted to give you that little bit of geroscience background. Now, this paper also tells you that most studies on animals and humans have reported increased hypothalamic CRF expression with a compensatory CRF1 receptor downregulation during aging. Okay, that's curious. You get high levels of CRF but lower levels of the receptor. Now, observations in other studies have described that there is an unchanged or even a reduced amount of CRF and they didn't necessarily report on the receptor. Now, let me summarize what's going on here. When you think about a couple of different hormones we've discussed already in authentic biochemistry. Leptin, which is generated in the adipose tissue. Ghrelin, which is first uh, uh, synthesized in the stomach and then moves to the GI tract. Both of those um, hormones are adipokines. They regulate in, in the central nervous system, satiety versus uh, the feed feeding mechanism. Leptin is satiety, ghrelin is the feeding mechanism. Remember, we talked a lot about this. Now, leptin turns on the expression of the proopial melanocortin gene in the arcuate nucleus, that particular subregion of the uh, central nervous system. Whereas ghrelin, which is the um, feeding response to dipokine, it blocks POMC. So let's follow the leptin pathway. You turn on the expression of POMC and you make then alpha MSH, which is alpha melanocyte stimulating hormone. Alpha MSH then binds to the PVN, that's the paraventricular nucleus of the hypothalamus, and that triggers the production of CRF, and depending on which then cell and uh, nucleus type in the central nervous system, the CRF is exposed to in what concentration, remember, you have high affinity, low affinity, depending on where you are in the brain, it'll bind to either CRF 1R or 2R, those two different receptors. That's what leptin does. That's the well-fed state. You get a lot of CRF basically through the POMC pathway, generating alpha MSH binding to its melanocortin receptor. Now, that's a major thing. Ghrelin basically blocks that, okay? So if you get ghrelin, which is the feeding or appetitive adipokine hormone, it blocks POMC, it blocks alpha MSH, and it blocks CRF. Okay, now insulin... Okay, it's going to be a pancreatic hormone, of course, regulating glucose metabolism, lipid metabolism in particular. It will also induce POMC, but far less um, of an effect on expression of POMC in the arcuate nucleus as compared to leptin. Maybe about a five-fold difference between leptin and insulin. 
Now, NPY and the agouti-related protein are also involved here, and we'll pick up on that later. But we talked about those two proteins being critical for the feeding response and the obesogenic response. Remember that. Now, let me tell you about the two different receptors. CRF1R, receptor 1, um, is known to elevate body temperature, increase heart rate, increase locomotor activity, increase, now this is important here for these discussions, angiogenic and depressogenic behavior. So it increases in some of the studies, the CRF1R. Now remember, this is going to ultimately end up producing cortisol, right? From the, from the adrenal cortex, remember through the ACTH. So we know that high levels of circulating cortisol are related to general anxiety disorder and major depressive disorder. So this all links together. Now, interestingly, and in opposition, the CRF2R, that isoform of the receptor, decreases food intake, decreases heart rate, decreases locomotor, locomotor activity, and decreases the uh, exogenic and depressive behavioral responses. So you get a reduction in general anxiety disorder. You get a reduction in a major depressive disorder when the CRF binds to the CRF2R receptor. So this, once again, is revelatory to explain how you have one um, particular hormonal system. Depending on which receptor it binds to, you can have contrarian responses. Now, I'm not going to call these contradictory because we know that you can have different tissue beds with different concentrations of the two receptors. And you also already know that those two receptors have different affinity for glucocorticoids that's downstream after the CRF is induced versus mineral corticoids. So you have the CRF receptors functioning, and then you have to think about the glucocorticoid receptor binding to the ultimate end product, which is a mineral corticoid or a glucocorticoid. So it's going to have another more, um, that's going to be a uh, complexometric response to which of the initial receptors the CRF is bound to. So you have multiple layers of integrated control over gene expression and output through the PVN, ultimately then relating all the way through the HPA axis and subsequent circulation of cortisol, which we know is associated with major depressive order and GAD. All of that then linked to the aging process, right? Okay. Now, paper published in Neuroscience in 2017 tells us this. This is more biological psychiatry, okay? I'm a, bio, I'm a humble biochemist, so when I read biological psychiatry, um, I'm reading it and I'm analyzing it, interpreting it based on how the science is done. Okay, but this isn't my, my field uh, sense is strict to. So what this paper is going to tell us is the following. Cognitive flexibility, that is the ability to rapidly make a decision in the face of a novel event, would make pro forma decisions inaccurate, imprecise, and potentially dangerous when it is corrupted. Okay, so cognitive flexibility. If it's corrupted, you can have pro forma decisions that could be inaccurate and precise or even dangerous. 
And that has been linked. So a rigidity of cognitive flexibility, if you will, the lack of having fluidity in cognitive alterations and decision-making upon stress phenomena has been associated with neuropsychiatric diseases and with aging in humans. Now, that's one thing. Second thing, reverse learning, which is going to be an important feature of today's lecture, is basically a readout technique to measure that flexibility of cognition, or what I would call more fluidity. And it's set up in the literature as an either-or between two different responses. The stimulus outcome, they call the SO, right? Or the response outcome, RO. Now, there's two different things here. You have a stimulus outcome you can look at by, by measuring this reverse learning. I'm going to explain what that is in a moment. Kind of, you can tell what it is just by the term. But, but you have two different systems that they want to study in cognitive flexibility. One is what happens on the axis of stimulus outcome versus what happens on the axis of response outcome, because you see they're distinct, right? So in the, in the classical reversal learning paradigm, individuals are going to be preconditioned so this is a synthetic experiment, right? It's not looking at real life situations. So remember that. But anyways, they precondition uh, individuals to discriminate between two visual stimuli or maybe spatial locations of certain um, color variations on the screen. One of those is going to be rewarded every time it's chosen and the other one will not be rewarded, okay? Now, after you get to where you can successfully discriminate, they call that successful discrimination learning, the achievement thereof, the outcomes associated with the two stimuli are then reversed. So that what used to be a positive reward system is now negative, okay? And they do that reversal to the same individuals and they train them so they're just as competent at responding to that particular stimulus and considering it a negative response as the one the same stimulus they saw was a positive response. So this is called reversal learning in, in uh, psychiatry, psychology, okay? So what does this reversal learning require? Well, it requires a subject to, I would say, flexibly adjust their behavior but really it's decision-making when the reward-related contingencies that they have previously learned are reversed. So can they make a switch? That's the point. Now for some time, according to this paper, a widely accepted idea in the literature was that this reversal learning primarily measured only an inhibitory control of response. So it was looking at that response outcome measure rather than stimulus outcome measure, okay? However, that hypothesis is not well delivered by further experimentation in the human system. Animal models, fine. Human system, when real life problems are offered, you do not see that it is primarily linked just to that initial phase of response, right? The control over response. 
So what I what I the way I gather this, you see a chance to cheat. Okay, this is my example. E.g., a person sees a chance to cheat on something, but they decide it is wrong. Then the same choice is offered to them, but they learn that now that's that same judgment or decision that you believed was wrong is now considered culturally acceptable within the population where you now reside. Now, if it's offered and you learn it is culturally acceptable, most individuals will continue with their first response. So that reward or that outcome is not as powerful as what I call endojective, internal, just, just within one person, ethics. So ethics override the reward. Okay, now this is what they find in humans. They don't see anything like that in the animals. If you can, you can, you can train the animals to have a, ne- a positive response to something, then you can do a reverse learning and show them they're going to get a negative response. And so they have no intellectual input on what those responses are. Just reward, yes. And if it's a reward that's going to cause pain, I'm not going to do it. If a reward is going to cause pleasure, I'm going to do it every time. Right? Even if you're already trained to, th- to the animals trained. They have the opposite response to it. With humans, it's more variable. Some humans will make the change, but by and large, most percentage of humans, when offered the chance, if it's an ethical decision, they will not toss their ethics overboard and they'll continue to work along that one line, which is basically the stimulus outcome line, which is an ethical outline, right? So for them, the reverse learning is not a good technique to study cognitive flexibility. You see, that's what I gather from this. So that's why when you read um, literature, you have to be able to interpret it. And the way you interpret it is you have to do a lot of background research. And that's what I'm doing here. So let's go back to discussing psychological uh, stress. Okay. This is like now back to um, where I feel more comfortable talking because it has to do with research that's conducted with a, you know, hypothetical deduction and experiments and whatnot, rather than a generalized sort of framework of study that when you talk about using human subjects and determining whether or not they'll respond favorably or unfavorably to certain stimuli. Not saying that that kind of research is bad. I'm just saying that that, in my opinion, as a, as a research scientist, that's a biochemist, I much more like a lot of positive and negative controls in the research I do. And I don't, in a lot of those kinds of experiments, don't have a built-in framework where you can generate positive and negative controls. And I, and I can have a discussion about that some other time if you want. I can do that. Anyway, psychological stress like fear or an anxiety and what is known as the intracerebroventricular uh, region of the brain, if you have CRF infusions in the ICV or you have a psychological stress like fear and anxiety, they all function to elicit a similar switch from goal-directed cognitive processes, which seem to be mediated by the medial prefrontal cortex, okay? And, and remember, that has to do with this whole, um, uh, uh, this whole response to having an environment that's dissociative. And that occurs towards the dorsolateral striatum, 
and that is dependent upon, so that dorsolateral striatum dependence is involved in the reverse learning. So you get this, the psychological stress, like fear and anxiety, and injecting CRF affects the same response for goal-oriented cognition mediated through the MPFC, uh, and working through EDS, and works through the dorsolateral striatum, and that is now linked to reverse learning. Now, you combine those observations, it indicates that under conditions of low stress, moderate levels of CRF and the locus Coriolis are associated with an enhanced EDS response. Remember, that's the response that has to do with having something unusual in the environment, right? Being able to recognize something unusual in the environment and make a decision based on that change, right? We went over this in great detail last time. Okay, so and that result that can result in, okay, if you have an enhanced EDS, you're going to have an optimal executive functioning. That means that you're able to detect an unusual change in your environment and still carry out a, a decision which has the right valence towards, say, uh, safety versus danger. Okay, so that's where they're coming from there. However, severe stress associated with high levels of CRF, again, in the locus coriolis, the LC, will contribute to a shift from optimal executive functioning, which of course is gonna be necessary for that goal-directed behavior toward a more habit-forming behavior. So it's believed that the CRF has something to do with responding with less flexibility. So the more stress, so the argument here, as far as I, I get what they're doing here, is the more stress you have in your environment, the higher level of stress, you're going to have higher levels of CRF. And that's going to associate with a lack of fluidity of this executive decision-making. Okay. And that's what, that's what's significant when you get older. So if you have a lack of fluidity in executive decision-making and, and you have also circulating high levels of circulating CRF, and that's going to link up to cortisol as well, which is going to be anti-inflammatory. Remember, in peripheral beds and also on the CNS, like with the microglia, that's going to associate with an increase in anxiety and depression in the elderly, because that comes from the previous literature. I'm just bringing that forward for you uh, right here in this discussion, but that's what we've already talked about. Okay, so this is where we're going with this. This is why you need to understand that reverse learning, okay? Okay, <clears throat> so... The results suggest that stress, like, for example, you know, uh, being afraid of something or not knowing how to respond to fear because of lack of recognition, stress will bias these neuro circuits and it will increase reward salience, where salience is something unique, in part through an elevated LC. And what does LC secrete? Norepinephrine signaling. Okay, norepinephrine. Now you get the idea, norepinephrine is fight or flee, you see? So in other words, now you're getting a supercharged hyper response to chronic stress, which is at a different tonicity than low circuitry stress. So you have a high level of CRF 
And as you're responding, as you get older, this system becomes less flexible so that minor fluctuations in the environment become very large fluctuations in the environment. This induces the secretion of CRF. So the stress is overcompensated. And then that turns on this whole circuitry, ultimately leading to LC production of norepinephrine. Right? And then the norepinephrine works downstream from there, inducing that response right, of, of fight or flee. But the individual then is unable to respond to it because it causes confusion. And that confusion is a major readout in the elderly, right? In part of what we would call um, decompensated memory or response time or just frank dementia, okay? So there's an interesting correlation that I had not really thought about and I hadn't seen the literature. And we're gonna really dive into it very next lecture. So this is again, part two of this really interesting CNS axis around aging related to how you get neuropsychiatric states related to hormonal and then intermediary me metabolic pathways linking up to stress responses that normally can be controlled but become dysfunctional as you age. Anyways, this is Dr. Dan Guerra from Authentic Biochemistry Studios. And I'm saying bye for now.